0: I had a question to ask you to begin the message this morning. It wasn't a rhetorical question, but it seems a little redundant to ask the question now since I just gave away the answer with the song we just sang. Nonetheless, let me pose the question to you. When you look at the book of Acts, surely this has popped into your mind. And we're seeing some of the things that are happening there. Not, not just the messages being preached, as powerful as those were, and not even the growth of the church, which was phenomenal by any measure at any time in history. But what about the miracles? I mean, what do we make of this? What do we make of the miracles? And the question is this, when you look at the scriptures there and you look at what's happening in the book of Acts, from really the beginning all the way till the end, you're going to see interspersed signs and wonders. You're going to see interspersed amazing things taking place. Here's the question, are these descriptive? I mean, is this merely a recounting of the history, which we know that Acts is biblical history, it's narrative text. Is this merely an example of descriptive Scripture, or is this prescriptive? In other words, the things that, the things that we see taking place in Acts, and the miracles that we see taking place, some of them are going to blow your mind if you've not read them. When we get to them, describing what happened, or prescribing for us what ought to be happening. I enjoy reading, and some of you may enjoy reading these little articles and these little interactions as well, but I like the uh, Ask Dr. John uh, little segments that John Piper does. And so uh, a student sent him this question. This was the question. It seems we see signs, wonders, and miracles all over our Bibles, but for many of us, we see an absence of signs, wonders, and miracles in our lives and in the world around us. And here's a question. So where did the wonders go? Where did the wonders go? And I wonder how many of you have that same question too. I mean, what we're seeing there, let's, I mean, let's just deal with this. This is not what we see. This is not what we experience. This is not our norm. So what do we make of this? Where, where did they go? Why are they not there? And let me just summarize his answer, which I thought was so insightful and just sort of sets the stage for us and just frames this out. So I'm going to borrow his thoughts for a moment in a summary form. He says, I want to point your attention to an Old Testament text. It's in the Psalms. It's Psalm 77:11. He says, and this Psalm reflects sort of the sentiment you probably would have heard among Old Testament believers. Here's what it says. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. He goes on to answer something like this. He says, if you were to survey the majority of Old Testament believers, Old Testament God-fearers, they probably would be asking the same question that you're asking today. Where are these miracles? Where are these mighty signs? I remember them. Or like Habakkuk prayed. Lord, repeat them in our day. Do those things again in our day. He said they would be looking for the same things. They would have the same questions that you would ask. Why were there more miracles in the days of Elijah? Or in the days of Moses? Why are they not happening now in the days of the prophets or the kings? Why do we not see them in the majority of the text? And here's what he said. He says it's simply a great mistake to think that there are miracles running all through the history of God's people as the Bible records it. They were not running all through the history of God's people. They sprung up around certain periods of time, certain critical events, things like the exodus from Egypt things like the ministries of Elijah or Elisha. And he said this, and I quote, Most of the time, the saints of the Old Testament were living by faith in the promises of God for the future, rooted in the past wonders of God that he has worked. Isn't that the way we live today? We look at what God has done, we think of the promises that God has made, we look to what is to come that we know that we have in Christ, and that's that's how we live. And then when he shifts to the New Testament, surely Jesus did a lot of miracles, but even the miracles of Jesus, as he says by his own testimony... Were to attest to his divinity so that when people watch those miracles, and those of you, as an aside, if you were here in the season of Calvary and we were in the Gospel of Mark, you'll remember one of the emphases that we gave is that Jesus was primarily a preacher more so than a miracle worker. It's not that he didn't work miracles, but the miracles were always part and parcel of the message being given. So even Jesus' miracles, he says, he explained them all as pointing to who he was as divine. John 10, 37, if I'm not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. The miracles of Jesus were evidence of his authority, evidence of the validity of his his words and who he was because of his divinity. And what about the apostles? When we get to the book of Acts, again, we're seeing miracles. I mean, we're seeing some amazing things done in Peter's life and, and others. He says, when you turn to the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament, it's obvious that the apostles did some astonishing miracles. But it's also true that they suffered much. They got sick. Paul carried a doctor around with him. They got thrown into prison. They got killed. He said, even though there are gifts of miracles, gifts of healing, gifts of exorcism that are spoken of even in Paul's letters, like 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it would be a stretch to think that those. Christians with those gifts in the first century were performing miracles the way Jesus did he said already in the first century within a decade so sort of Christ things had already begun to change so what do we make of this these miracles we're asking the same questions today what does God want from us what does God want to do through us and among us let's pray about that this morning and we'll dive into the text Father, glorify Yourself, I pray, in the Word today that You've given us, the Word You've preserved for us, inspired for our sake, the Word that You've established forever in the heavenlies. Father, I thank You for that. We can trust it, that everything You want us to know about You, You've given to us through Your Word. You teach us by Your Spirit. You bring light and life through the unfolding of Your Word, and so, Father, do that for us today. And Father, not just for... Academic sake, but Father, that our faith might grow. Father, we might live faithfully, obediently. Father, that we might see you at work, give glory to you, that the nations might glorify you. Really, that's our prayer. Not just us worshiping today, but all those who don't know you, those whose lives are going to intersect with ours, those who are going to hear our stories, our testimonies, our witnesses, those who are going to be affected by the missionaries that we send and support. All of those people. Father, you're going to call to yourself. Father, glorify yourself through there. Soon we pray salvation. And Lord, use us. Use us in these days, these troubled days. Keep us faithful. Keep us rooted, grounded in Christ, our sure and firm foundation. Lord, keep us centered in your word and empower us by your spirit. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So what's happening here in the text? Obviously, God is doing something in response to what they had prayed for at the end of of chapter 4. In their persecution, as God was already doing wondrous things and people were being saved, they said, God, don't let that stop. We want to continue to have boldness, and we want to continue to see you move, and that's exactly what God is doing them. Uh, Doing through them. When verse 13 says, none of the rest dare join them, that speaks of the leadership, that speaks of the sort of the religious hierarchy. Uh, Those people who are antagonistic towards them, Pharisees, Sadducees, religious leaders, etc., they didn't partner with them, but the others did. And more and more people were being added to them. In the early days, the church had sort of a central gathering place. When they were not in homes, they were gathered around Solomon's Portico. You can look that up and you can find that online. You can find a little diagram of the temple area and the temple mount area. And you can see what was likely the spot where they congregated, where messages were preached and where the early believers gathered for worship. And it says this was happening. They were even getting people and putting them in the streets so that when Peter walked by, his shadow might fall on them. Now, again, the text doesn't say that Peter's shadow healed people. That was their expectation, that was their hope, that just being in proximity to Peter, people were being healed. And yet we know that they were bringing those people to the apostles, verse 16, by implication it's the apostles, because verse 12 says it was through the apostles, so they're bringing them to the apostles and people were being healed. Okay, so here's what's happening, and that doesn't look like your normal Sunday morning, at least not now. What's the difference? Well, Let's first look at the what and the why of miracles. Let's not lose sight of the big picture focus of the book of Acts. Acts is a continuum, the second part of the Gospel of Luke. So there's Luke, Acts. Here's the story of Jesus. Now Jesus giving his great commission. Jesus ascending up to the Father. Jesus leaving the disciples behind now as... Carriers of the witness, carriers of the mission. He has passed the baton to them. It's one continuation. What is he doing? What's the point? What's the purpose? The focal point, Acts, is clearly on the gospel mission. Now, we like to look at Acts sometimes, I think, and look at the miraculous experiences, the supernatural events, but the primary focus is on the mission. It's how the gospels end. It's how Acts begins, Acts 1.8. You will be my witnesses, Jerusalem. Judea, Samaria, eventually to the ends of the earth. He tells them by which means they will be His witnesses. The Holy Spirit will come. Wait on it. Wait on Him. Wait on Him. Wait on the Holy Spirit. Wait on this event, the coming of the Holy Spirit. When He comes, you will receive power. And when you receive that power, you're going to be my witnesses. And this is going to spread. It's all about the witness. And here's a point I want to make from the beginning. When we think about the miraculous... In the book of Acts, I think sometimes one of our worst mistakes, one of our gravest mistakes is we we bisect those miracles and we take out a great portion of what is truly miraculous in the book of Acts and we overlook it altogether. Everything that's happening in the book of Acts is miraculous. It's not just the signs and wonders. From the gospel proclamation through the conversions that we see to the signs and wonders, all of this is miraculous. That someone like Peter, who before had been so fearful, so unwilling to be bold for his relationship with Christ, so unwilling to stand up, now stands up and speaks, is miraculous. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in him, already miraculously working through him. So that when they got up to speak, you remember that great sermon? When he got up to speak, people began to hear him speaking in their own languages That first gospel proclamation in the languages of many was miraculous. And when people responded to that gospel, that was a spiritual miracle taking place in them. It's something that would not have happened had God not effected it, had God not made it happen. Consider how Paul describes salvation. You want an insight into Paul and his preaching of the gospel, his experiences in the book of Acts, his experiences from place to place and church to church? Here's how Paul wrote of it the whole gospel experience and the miraculous aspect of it 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 3. Here's what Paul said. And again, he's talking about speaking to people who are lost and people for whom um, the gospel doesn't make sense, doesn't penetrate people whose hearts are hard, whose hearts are cold, people who don't hear, don't respond, or people who are antagonistic towards. Listen to what he says. If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Have you ever considered that when you're sharing the gospel with someone, maybe it's someone who doesn't get it, Maybe it's someone who doesn't care to get it. Maybe somebody who's opposed to it. Have you considered there's a spiritual warfare at play here? It's not just human reasoning. It's not just their own experiences. It's not just that somebody, somewhere, some Christian did them wrong or some church offended them. There's a spiritual warfare taking place right there in front of you. The God of this world has blinded them. They don't see the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ. When they see Jesus, they don't see him like you see him. So what's the solution to that? More clever? conversational skills, tools, better promotional materials. Now, what's the key? Listen to what he says. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Why? Why do we just proclaim Christ? We're not trying to sell ourselves. We're trying to just say Christ. Here's who he is. This is what he's done. Why? Listen to this miracle. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Did you get that? The great miracle of creation, that out of darkness, God speaks light. Is that not miraculous? That God calls this? In the same way, the God of creation speaks spiritual light where there's spiritual darkness. God does this. But we... We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And that same word power is the same word often used for miracles. This dunamis, this power of God, this awesome power of God that's not earthly, it's not human, can't be concocted, can't be manipulated, can't be faked, comes from God. So God creates this. This is miraculous. Let's define a miracle for a moment. I gave you some definitions from some people who I think are worthwhile, from Herbert Lockyer to um, to J.I. Packer. Herbert Lockyer says, A work done by a divine power for a divine purpose by means beyond the reach of man. C.S. Lewis called in his book, Miracles, he defines a miracle as an interference with nature by supernatural power. J. Gresham Machen says a miracle is an event in the external world that is wrought by the immediate power of God. J. I. Packer, an observed event that triggers awareness of God's presence and power. R. C. Sproul said a miracle is an extraordinary work performed by the immediate power of God in the external perceivable world which is an act against nature that only God can do. This is what a miracle is. It is by nature supernatural. It's interesting in his little book, which I'd recommend to you to read, uh, Miracles by C.S. Lewis. He says people fall into one of two categories when it comes to miracles. They're either naturalists or they're supernaturalists. The naturalists will look to natural, rational explanations for everything, pseudo-scientific explanations for everything. So everything they see in Scripture that is miraculous, they'll try to come up with an answer for. That's natural to them. A supernaturalist is someone who's willing to accept that there are things beyond our comprehension. There are things beyond our scope, beyond our power. So in the Old Testament, when you see something like an axe head floating, this is when God supersedes the laws that he himself has made, those natural laws, which he's also God of, and he calls them to be superseded supernaturally for a moment for his own purposes. These are miraculous things. So it's not just what miracles are, but it's what is the purpose of miracles in scripture. What are they for? Well, John MacArthur says a miracle is to authenticate his messengers as bearing a true revelation from God. Wayne Grudem says they give evidence that God is truly at work and serve the advance of the gospel. Succinctly in a sermon on miracles, Piper said that they just simply help to bring people to Christ. This is the point of miracles. Now I want you to look just for a moment as you think through how these play out in our life. What's the difference between, or is there a difference between, the miracles that Jesus did and the miracles that the apostles did? Again, consider what Acts 2.22 says of Jesus' miracles, testimony of why Jesus did miracles. Men of Israel, hear these words, Peter said, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. What was the point of miracles in Jesus' life? The testimony of God. Vindicating, validating, affirming Jesus. Jesus was attested to you by God. This is truly my son doing miracles among you. This is believe in him. This is the point, to attest of him. What does the Bible say about the purpose of miracles for the apostles? 2 Corinthians 12, 12. Paul writes, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. What were the marks of true apostleship? One, that they were with Christ. They physically were with Christ. And that they were able to do miracles. God worked miracles through them. Or remember Hebrews. For those of you are here in our Hebrew study, you may remember chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. How should we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and, same word, it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. So, as the gospel was going out, first through Christ, who came preaching the gospel, then through the early church and the apostles, the attestation of God, the testimony of God, that this is mine, my word, these are my people, this message is true was through signs and wonders. And I believe this summation by John MacArthur is true. You could say that the early church was not a miracle-working church, per se. But the early church was a church with miracle-working apostles. And remember, that's exactly what our text says at the beginning. Many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. This is what God was doing. Consider also some Old Testament miracles. Um, When you look to the Old Testament, you'll see a certain period, certain eras where God was doing miraculous things. Uh, One of those was through Moses. When Moses was reluctant to accept God's call, Moses, who by his own attestation was not uh, a public speaker, not a commanding figure, Um, God said that he would affirm the words of Moses through miracles. Look at Exodus chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. This I will do through you. I will validate you. I will attest to you that you're my servant. You're speaking my words. You represent me. I'll do that with miracles. What about a few of the prophets? Which prophets do you think of? When you think of prophets doing miracles in the Old Testament, who do you think of? Well, we don't think of Jeremiah or Isaiah. We think of men like Elijah, Elisha. Why was God doing miracles through Elijah? Well, consider Elijah after raising the widow's son from the dead. What does the Bible say? The woman said to Elijah, Now I know what? I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. What was the point of the miracle? Attestation, validation. This is my word. Or after defeating the false prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Do you remember that whole scene? He's battling the false prophets of Baal and the worshipers of the Asherah poles, and, and they each want to bring a sacrifice. And you know, I'll give you the short version of the story Elijah covers his with 12 barrels of water, the whole thing is soaked and saturated. And God sends down fire and flame, consumes the whole sacrifice. What does he say? When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Why did God work in those particular times? For the validation of his messengers, for the testimony of his own word in critical times and places. So in the New Testament, we see Acts. What are the results? What are the results of these signs and wonders? Verse 14, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So, here's the point. God, when He sees fit, at certain eras or epochs of time in the whole redemption story of Scripture intercedes supernaturally, empowers certain individuals, a few prophets in the Old Testament, Jesus, His Son, the apostles of the New Testament, and in those critical moments where breakthroughs are happening and the gospel is penetrating a dark culture or the truth of Scripture now is being unfurled before them, the attestation of these apostles who will be the writers of Scripture, these words are true, these people represent me, God does the miraculous. Here's a, a, something I was thinking early on, I maybe should have included at the beginning of the message, two extremes I think that Christians have to avoid today just in conversations that I have, two extremes. One is seeing everything as a miracle. You know people who see everything as a miracle? Oh man, it was a miracle. You know, I was, um, I was driving to the grocery store and I knew, you know, it's the day before Thanksgiving. And I know the place is going to be packed and I'm driving around and would you believe it? Right there, the first space by the door. <laughs> it's a miracle. <laughs> it's a miracle. I was balancing my checkbook And, you know, I just wasn't sure I was going to pay the bill. And I looked, and I had forgotten something. I had forgotten to mark down, and there were were 40 extra dollars in there. It's a miracle. Listen, there's a difference between the truly miraculous, wherein God supersedes his own laws, and God works in ways that are contrary to nature, to creation itself, and what we can rightly call as Christians, providence. Providence is the exercise of God's sovereignty in this world, primarily for the sake of His people. So can we say that God acts providentially for us? Absolutely. We live in a world, thankfully, guided by God's providence, that God works in ways, as we sang earlier, seen and unseen. Uh, one One of the examples was this. We just covered this in Genesis this past week. you got the whole story near the end of Genesis where Joseph, who had been sold into slavery and abandoned by his brothers, and for all they knew, lost, gone, dead forever. And suddenly, because of famine, they go into Egypt, and they find that God has elevated Joseph to second-in-command. And here is Joseph now, and these ten brothers, these ten older brothers, are having to come to Joseph, and they're having to buy food and grain to save their families, to save their people. Now again, Joseph is second-in-command in in a time of great famine across um, the whole Middle East and, and that known area of the world. Um, He was second in command of a nation that was already vast in multitude. So the idea, the thought that Joseph would himself be the checkout girl for every person buying food and grain during a seven-year famine is preposterous. That's providence that God orchestrated in such a way that it would be Joseph's brothers who would encounter Joseph in that moment. That's the providence of God. It's not something supernatural or unnatural. Somebody who's a a skeptic or a naturalist would say of providence, that's just coincidence. Oh, that could happen to anybody. As Christians, we say, no, God is good. And God works in our lives for His glory and for our good. This is what He does because He's a benevolent Father. That's providence. So don't see everything as a miracle because everything's not a miracle, and that diminishes miracles. But I also want to caution you to not see nothing as a miracle. To not see nothing as a miracle. And that same... Answer that Piper gave to that student about why do we not see them today, he said this, and I think he's exactly right. There are probably more miracles happening today than we realize. If we could collect all the authentic stories all over the world, from the missionaries and the saints and all the countries of the world, all the cultures of the world, if we could collect all the millions of encounters between Christians and demons and Christians and sickness and all the so called coincidence of the world, we would likely be stunned. We would think we're living in a world of miracles which we are. So what do we make of this today? It's clear that in certain periods of time, God did the miraculous. In much larger spans of time, people longed for, remembered, or had their faith established by the miraculous while they lived in faith, while they lived waiting. Most of the Old Testament was not filled with miraculous, but certain points were. Most of the New Testament we know also is not filled with miraculous, but certain points were. So what do we make of this today? Well, Here are two two conclusions, so stick with me, and I'm going to elaborate on these just briefly. first one is this. I believe, and I believe the Scriptures are clear on this, that the era of miracle-working apostles is over. But, and this is an important caveat, while the era of miracle-working apostles like Peter and Paul is over, God can and still does the miraculous. Now, that's not... Those things are not at odds with one another. That's not a contradiction in terms. The era of apostles with miracle-working power given to them by God seems to be over, but God still does miraculous. And the miraculous work that God does, we see biblically as a response to what? Say it with me. Prayer. Prayer. So, we look at the book of Acts. When was the book of Acts taking place? Taking place. Well, again, it's shortly after the crucifixion, resurrection, ascension of Christ. So we're looking sometime in the, in the 30s. So that decade of 30 to 40, what we would call A.D. And when was James's letter written? Well, James was there. He was physically present with these apostles. He was a leader in the early church. It was Peter, James, and John that were the three primary leaders of the early church. When James writes his epistle, that's sometime in the early 60s. So some 20, 30 years after these events that took place post-Pentecost, come the Holy Spirit, what does James say to do if someone is sick, if someone is hurting? What are James's words? He doesn't say, call one of the apostles and they'll heal you. He doesn't say for you, heal them. What does he say? If anyone, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. Again, don't call the elders for them to heal you. Call for them to pray for you. And it is God who works in response to faithful praying. The prayers of the righteous are effective, the Bible says. They're effective to accomplish his purposes. So the error of that individual possessing And again, I I didn't want to spend too much time on this because I think the the point is already well understood. So much of we see today masquerading as apostolic healing is fraudulent. It's simply fraudulent, unproven, fraudulent. And the types of healing that we see in the miracle, I mean, the types of healings and miracles that we see in the New Testament era, in apostolic era, um, were not superficial. They were obvious. They were clear. They were definitive sorts of healings. Um, So much of what we see today is so different than that. So it's not through these individuals, it's through the power of prayer. So, I believe that praying, according to Acts 4.30, or Acts 4.29 and 30, is still viable. And it's still necessary. So in other words, what happened when the church was under great persecution? All right, We know miraculous things were happening. We know the gospel was being preached. We know that many were being saved. And when the authorities came to suppress that, to push that down, um, to silence it, What did they do? They prayed. And this is what they prayed. Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. We should pray for that today. You and I should still be praying all the time. God, grant to us to speak with boldness. If Peter had to pray that, if John had to pray that, if by extension Paul had to pray that, of course we have to pray that. I have to pray that just for the, you know, the person across the street or the person at the um, gas station or wherever it may be. God, grant us that we would continue to speak your, your word with boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Is it okay that we would still pray like they prayed in Acts? I think it is that we would pray. God, give us boldness to speak, but God, we ask that you would do amazing things. That when we pray for people who are sick, God, that you, by your will, Who has not chosen to heal everyone. Jesus didn't heal everyone in every village and every town. Nor did all the apostles or the disciples. What do we do? We pray, God, that you would do what you have done. What are those prayers in Acts 4, 29 through 30? That signs and wonders would affirm the gospel message. That signs and wonders would affirm the gospel message. Charles was speaking today regarding our, our Annie Armstrong Easter offering, which supports North American missions. Of course, most of you who know, if you've been part of our church or Southern Baptist churches, that we also do an annual offering that is aimed at international missions. We call that one the Lottie Moon Offering. In addition to these domestic mission projects that we engage in, we also engage in international ones. We just had a team that came back from Guatemala. We'll be sending teams, Lord willing, this year to Kenya, uh, to India, maybe other places as well as God leads, as God opens the door. door. We have a missionary of our own serving right now in, um, in a region of Asia that is largely um, unacquainted with the gospel, um, largely antagonistic towards the gospel. What do we pray and hope for there? That God supernaturally would substantiate His Word. God supernaturally. That God would use these prayers to help hurting people. This is part of what those miracles did. This is what those answers to prayer did. Those sick people, those hurting people, those needy people. That God would do miraculous things to help hurting people. That hindrances to the gospel would be removed as a result. That hindrances, hindrances to the gospel. I remember when we were in India, we were invited to um, pray. We were, we were having dinner and um, somebody came and knocked on the door and asked us if we would come over across the street and pray for their daughter who had fallen and been injured, had injured arm and shoulder. And so asked if we'd go to their house and pray. And so with the missionary and interpreter, we went into that house and we began to pray. And when we came out, I asked him, I said, so were those people Christian? Because I saw um, one of those rather Catholic-looking Jesus sort of pictures on top of the TV set. One of those was like the bleeding heart kind of picture. You know what I'm talking about, still on the TV set. said, so, so, so were those Christians? Or He said, oh, no, no, no. Um, you know, they've heard about Jesus, but if you didn't notice, you know, they had all sorts of other pictures of all sorts of other gods all through the house there. They just added Jesus to the mix of all these things. But perhaps, as God answers prayer, it'll give me... Better opportunity the next time I see them to speak of Jesus Christ, the source of healing power. And so we do those things, we pray for them. And ultimately, what, what was the point of the miracles? Old Testament, in the era of Christ, in the era of the apostles, even today, that God would be glorified. That God would be glorified. Jesus was not simply some magician, it was not about the spectacle. It was about the glorification of Christ and the truth of the gospel. So we pray for those things. We pray for boldness. We pray for the power of God to fall. And if God should so deem it necessary in places like India, other dark places in the world, or in the dark days that, that are to come, if God should so desire to revisit with the miraculous, then so be it. We pray for those things, that God will do that. I'm going to give you a conclusion of sorts this morning from something I've been reading, and, and just hope it'll speak to you. i want to share some of his thoughts and words. Again, in his book, Miracles, C.S. Lewis writes this. He said, The central miracle asserted by Christians is the Incarnation. The Incarnation. He says, Every other miracle prepares for this, or exhibits this, or results from this. The Incarnation. That God himself would descend so low to earth to be born of woman, to live a physical life among us as one of us, to suffer amongst us, to be tempted as we are tempted, to live and to die and to be raised, he says, is the great miracle of Scripture, the incarnation of Christ. He calls this the grand miracle. Incomprehensible, he says. A depth too deep to be fathomed, how God Himself becomes man, and yet He does. He describes the incarnation as God descending to ascend, and He uses the illustration of a strong man. Picture a strong man stooping lower and lower and lower to get himself underneath some great burden. He almost disappears under the load, He says, before He incredibly straightens His back and He marches off with the whole mass weighing on His shoulders. He says, this picture is a picture of the death and resurrection of Jesus. That Jesus descended for our sake. He takes on the great burden of our sin. And though it looks as if it crushes him utterly, he rises. And he takes the whole weight of sin and death on his own shoulders. He says, this great descent was occasioned by our own fall. By our own sin. Our sin that made us fall. Our sin that was rendered possible by the free will of God, given to both men and angels. Because, as Lewis said, God saw that from a world of free creatures, even though they fell, that He could work out a deeper happiness and a fuller splendor than any world of mere automatons. So God does this great work. In Lewis's words, he says, The greater the sin, the greater the mercy, the deeper the death, the brighter the rebirth. But he says, for us, death is penalty. The Bible makes it clear that death is penalty for sin. In God's creation, in the Garden of, of Eden, God's initial plan, God's first purposes for man, we were exempt from death, he says. It's sin that brought death as a penalty. But because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, Jesus who took on death for us and was raised for us, all those who are in Christ will one day also be immune to death and its effects. No longer will be part of us. He says, only a man who did not need to have been a man at all unless he had chosen, only the one who had served in our sad regimen as a volunteer, only one who is perfectly a man without sin could perform a perfect dying, defeating death and redeeming it. Jesus, who tasted death on behalf of us, but has been resurrected and now lives, and because he lives, we can live too. That is the grand miracle of Scripture. This week, we're in what we call Holy Week. Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday where people gathered on on the streets shouting Hosanna to Jesus as He marched marched into the city. The deliverance they sought was not the deliverance they needed. Like so many of us today, it was superficial, short-sighted. Maybe if life was just a little bit better, Maybe if the Romans didn't have authority over us. Maybe if conditions weren't so difficult. Um, Maybe if we could get back to the way things used to be. And they lauded him as the one that would come in and restore the physical throne of their great King David. But it became clear that Jesus came to solve something much greater, much more serious. To redeem us from a situation far more weighty than just our circumstances than just the general condition of our lives, but to set us free from sin and death, to set us aright with the God who made us, to give us new life, crucify Him, crucify Him, give us someone else, give us Barabbas, they prayed. But this Easter season, the grand miracle of the incarnation, that God in His great love for us sent Jesus for our sake, that He lived among us, that he became us, that he suffered like us, and more than that, that he suffered for us, and that he, the great strong man, was able to bear our sins fully, for those sins had no weight on him. He deserved no death. He deserved no punishment, but he took it for us. And as he was crucified, that great miracle of resurrection, dunamis, that same mighty power, raised him from the dead. And for all who are in him, They also have life. That is the great promise of Christianity. It's the miracle of Christ. And I pray it's your miracle as well. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we find ourselves in the company of many who have gone before us through the centuries. We pray as the psalmist did. We remember your deeds. We remember your wonders. We know the stories. We know the miraculous. We know the stories of great power, great deliverance. The greatest of all those stories being power and deliverance through the resurrection of our Savior. Lord, we look at these miraculous events these healings in Scripture, we do not, Father, I pray. I pray that none would dismiss them as the fanciful notions of a less scientific people, a less knowledgeable age. But instead, see that you, God, are supreme over your own creation. And you, as your word says of you, do whatever you please. And that nothing is impossible for you. And Lord, though your mighty works, though these signs and wonders exceed our understanding, supersede our our knowledge, Father, I pray that we would trust you and believe that you are who you say you are. You do what you say you do. You've done what the word says you've done and Lord, we pray that you would do it again. Lord, forgive us for losing faith in anything beyond our own abilities our own rational thinking, our own scientific skills. Father, may we again be a people who trust you to do miraculous things, things that would not happen were it not for you interceding. So Lord, whether that be the salvation of someone who though we may not admit it outright, we feel like they can't be saved. Or the healing of someone that we may feel like has a hopeless situation or the deliverance of someone from addiction who we feel like is too far gone. Father, may we trust You. May we seek You. And may we seek You with expectation. So Lord, as we look at these texts, as we've looked at today, not just as a matter of history or study, Not merely to be analyzed, but Father, to give us hope, to renew our faith, to say, God, as those first believers did in the book of Acts, grant that we would continue to be bold while you, by your mighty hand, glorify yourself in whatever way you please, do great things, that are self-attesting. and say this is God and there is no other. And Father, just as happened in those early days as miracles took place that created so many questions for people they would be quick to give gospel answers. Hope is not in healing. The hope is in Christ who gives us all things. So Lord, Father, I pray that that would remain our focus the mission the mission there's good news for those who are in Christ that one day we will be rescued from death and sin sickness and sadness just as you redeem us you redeem all of creation a new heaven a new earth a place where we can enjoy you and glorify you forever Lord, may we not forget our mission. So with boldness and power, Lord, use us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.